As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Dose of Leadership Podcast, episode 226. Welcome to another episode of the Dose of Leadership Podcast, the show that brings you inspiring and educational interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders. Each episode is dedicated to highlight real-life leadership and influence experts who dedicate their lives to the pursuit of the truth, common sense, and courageous leadership. And now, here's your host, Richard Ryerson. Hey, welcome to Dose of Leadership. Richard Ryerson here. As always, so happy and thankful you're tuning into the show. I'm happy because if you're listening to the show, that means you're becoming intentional. At least you're trying to find out what it means to become a better leader. I know a lot of people think this is a business podcast, and I suppose it is under categories. I have to put something in iTunes to categorize this podcast, and it is a business podcast. And But to me, it's more of a life podcast because, yeah, we do, do have to exude leadership in business, and we, we think about how I can become a better leader so I can obtain higher levels of success and more accountability and responsibility, more money, all those things. But like I've always said, and I say countless times on this show, that somebody right now is looking to you for influence and guidance. And with that truth, we need to understand that we can all become better leaders. We don't have to wait for a position. We don't have to wait for title. We don't have to wait for anything. We just have to opt in and say, you know what? I'm going to be intentional about my leadership growth from here on out. And it's a journey that never ends. You will never arrive. And that's okay. That's the truth. That's the reality. That's what makes it actually enjoyable. So thank you for tuning in. If you're finding value, please subscribe to it, to your mobile device, iTunes, Stitcher, the podcast app. It's all free. If you could take a few minutes to subscribe, rate, and review, it would do so much for the algorithm to keep it front and center in the ever-expanding universe of podcasts. Help me keep dose of leadership front and center so we can continue to make a dent in the universe when it comes to leadership development and growth. I appreciate your support when it comes to that. Thank you for being a fan of the show. Stick around halfway through the show. I want to talk to you a little bit about masterminds, particularly I've been doing masterminds for about three years, virtually and in person. It's basically short-term group coaching exercises that will help you achieve some levels of success or significance. And I want to talk to you about a special mastermind that I've just kicked off and I'm going to be continuing to do throughout the year every eight weeks called the Search for Significance Mastermind. So about halfway through, I'll pause the interview and we'll talk a little bit about that just to give you some more information about that. But today I want to start off and kick off this conversation with our guest, Melanie Fletcher. 
Melanie Fletcher is very impressive to me because she's the chief operating officer for Dun and Dusted. Now, Dun and Dusted is um, is all about producing live events, special events, television events. And Melanie is the chief operating officer, like I said, and she's been a longstanding partner, a key member of this group for the last 15 years and very instrumental to the growth and the success of all the company's events and the live television projects. And I was so impressed by her credits, her resume of what she's been uh, a producer on many multiple award-winning projects. I mean, just to top off, I'm just blown away that she was the lead producer, executive producer for the London 2012 Olympic, Olympic opening and closing ceremonies, which is just, I can't imagine the logistics and all the stress behind that. Uh, multiple Victoria's Secret fashion shows, Kings of Leon, American Express on stage, Adele at the Royal Albert Hall, Rolling Stones, Bigger Bang television special, on and on and on. And of course, I'm a kind of a, a geek when it comes to radio and television production. I love the whole concept of it. But I'm really intrigued by what it takes to kind of be that kind of lead producer, that kind of person in the middle that has to kind of balance everything from the creative to the business to the bottom line, all of that. You know, and you can imagine like flying a plane, it takes a, a tremendous amount of compartmentalization of being unflappable, of never letting him see his sweat. And I, and, and I always appreciate people in that position or have to because it takes a great deal of, like I said, compartmentalization and leadership. You know, how do you become a master in a creative environment? How do you execute ideas? How do you take these big ideas and turn them into something re- real, right? The team leadership that's involved with that is just fascinating to me. How do you develop these client relationships? How do you, you know, go about producing something? What's the strategy behind it? How do you keep it going on and on? I'm just fascinated by all that stuff. And it takes a tremendous amount of leadership. And as you can imagine, it can equate to any part of our lives. It's thriving in that chaotic environment. It's exploiting that chaos, not trying to necessarily quell the chaos, but to exploit it. Because once a live event goes into play, it's kind of like a wedding. Once you you can plan the wedding, but once the wedding is underway, you just kind of, you're along for the ride, right? And I just kind of love that kind of environment. So Melanie Fletcher thrives in that environment and very successful in that environment. And we talk about that and we talk about a leadership journey. And I really think you're going to like this conversation. So without further ado, here's Melanie Fletcher, the Chief Operating Officer from Dun & Dusted. Well, Melanie, what a thrill to have you on the show. Welcome to Dose of Leadership. Thank you very much. Very happy to be talking to you. Well, you know, I'm excited about us telling you in the pre-interview you know, I've always been fascinated with radio and television production, and, and I talk about I just can't imagine an industry, and you've done so many things, and you're involved in so many high-level productions. Dealing with chaos has got to be kind of like your your um, kind of modus operandi. Is that is that a fair statement? <laughs> yes, I think, I think that is true. I think it is a fairly chaotic environment, especially when you're dealing in the live environment, and um, you do learn to survive chaos, and in fact thrive within it and and then when things calm down you have no idea how to actually function normally (laughs) (laughs) right there's there's probably a a kind of a a letdown and saying that you know when the peace and calm happens hey this isn't normal right yeah i mean we're sort of jumping to the jumping to the end but it's true you know we we have a saying called the post show blues and you do get them it's you know you go one day from being extremely busy and feeling somewhat self-important with hundreds of emails and radios going and all sorts of people asking you questions and then uh, literally the next day you're lucky if you get a a thank you email and it just all ends and it takes you a couple of days to get your head around that and to jump into the next project. Man, that's funny that you said that. I just, I remember, you know, I was put on a 
uh, had to plan a couple of events, you know, that were nothing compared to what you've done. But I mean, they've been you know, fairly large, you know, and a lot of moving parts and you're planning it for months. And then when it's over, there is that kind of blues. It's almost like a depression. That is, I never even thought about that. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and I think there's a tiredness that you don't know that you have until long after the show is finished because you just run on adrenaline um, and, and the need to get the work done that there's, you know, there's a real deadline with a live show. Um, you can't come back to it the next day to fix any mistakes or problems or improve anything. So um, you just, you sort of just get into this headspace that has no room for tiredness or sleep or, you know, right. personal life issues or anything and then the following day or the days after a show you then have to really, you know, focus on the reality of a normal life and it can be a little bit depressing. <laughs> <laughs> well, how did – let's go back. I mean, how did you get involved with uh, this, this space? I mean, what, what kind of prompted you to go down this path? Um, you know, I think – I do – I feel quite fortunate because it can be quite a difficult industry to break into, especially – when you come from a you know a small town in Australia, but um, I I just met some really good people along the way, and it was just a really sort of fortunate journey that they came into my life when they did, and and I got to work with them and for them and and do a good job and be referred to others. So I was um, actually glass collecting in a pub in Adelaide and uh, got chatting to a cameraman who called Shane Yind and he went on to be a successful production company entrepreneur and uh, I just got to be a part, part of his journey really and ride on his coattails so I assisted him as a sort of a camera assistant for a bit and then when he started his business he gave me a job as a, a researcher and then an assistant producer and so on and as his business succeeded so did I. Um, and then eventually found MTV when they came to Australia to open their doors there. And, and MTV is just a fantastic university of television for young people. It certainly was then. Things have changed a little bit now in the way they program in that they're not making as much original music programming, certainly. But um, back then there were just hundreds of us working for MTV and, and you learned a lot and you got to travel the world and, and you got to do a lot of production in that it, it wasn't um, – you weren't sort of tied to one job. You, you sort of got to do everything from producing to production managing to editing and you learned the full scope of the business um, whilst being around people of your own age in the music business. I mean, it was so much fun. Yeah, and uh, then that, that, that MTV job then led me into America and then eventually the UK uh, and it will be coming full circle when I move back to America later this year. Yeah. So prior to meeting this guy in the pub, I mean, were you had you always kind of tinkered around of like you know make pr producing things like making movies or producing little shows for yourself? I mean, what what or, or did you just kind of just after meeting this guy, you just kind of learned you know doing it on the on the you know, kind of by by brute force. Yeah, I mean, I think, do you know, I actually wanted to be in radio at school and then I, straight after school I did a little radio course and that was the medium that I was most interested in and and, and what interested me about radio was its, it's live nature, the fact that it was right. um, happening live and that, that you had to be very reactive and responsive and sharp and witty and all those things, um, but at the same time you didn't need to be seen. That was very appealing to me. Um, and then, and, and in fact, I went on a family trip to America and, and I remember being in New York and I think I was in my sort of mid-teens and listening to the radio and my father telling me that, you know, six million people were listening to that morning breakfast show and I just found that 
tremendously exciting and just knew that that's, that's what I wanted to do. Um, and then, I, and then it was sort of by accident that I met someone in television, and then and then they gave me a job, and then that was that. And I never sort of looked back to radio again. I still love the radio platform, though, and listen to a lot of radio, and and I'm very inspired by the way that they tell stories without pictures and the way that they deal with the live platform. Uh, but for me, it just never eventuated. Maybe one day I'll go back to that, but. Um, I'd have no idea actually how to produce a radio show. I've asked a, a few times friends that are in, in radio if I can come by and, and watch and uh, unfortunately just never found the time to do it. But I would like to do it. I'd like to see how that operates um, with all their knobs and buttons. And um, <laughs> yeah. I think it would be interesting to draw the comparison. So is, is that maybe the key? Is Do you have to be somebody that's passionate about telling a story? I mean, it seems to me, yeah, there's a lot of technical and technical technical and tactical expertise that has to be involved in the job, I'm sure, but at the end of the day, don't you have to really understand storytelling to be successful at this? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there, there is, there's no program that we make that doesn't have a story and, um, and there's no program that any viewer wants to watch that isn't story-led. You know, there's some real basics to making television of any kind in that you need a beginning, middle and end and you, and you need some jeopardy and you need some anticipation and you need some payoffs. Otherwise, people just switch off. And, and that goes for everything from Victoria's Secret Fashion Show to CNN Heroes. You know, it doesn't just necessarily need to be documentary-based story. It can still be live entertainment. It can still be entertainment on a stage and have a storyline. It's just the way that you see that storyline may be presented differently um, than what you expect in a linear picture format. Yes. Um, and we come at everything like that now. We sit down at the very beginning of each production and talk about the overarching story of that event or show or program or whatever it might be. And unless we can really clearly explain that to each other, then we don't move on into development until we've nailed the actual hook because otherwise you go around in circles but you're never really actually getting anywhere unless you've got sort of, sounds a little bit branded, but when, unless you've sort of got a brand message to come back to and you sort of revert back to it as your pillar um, to make sure that you're staying on track. Yeah, I could see my. I could see how that could get. But to me, that that is the most difficult part because I can see is like, hey, I just you know, I got this vision. I want to get this produced. I mean, even take the Victoria's Secret fashion show. It seems crazy to think that you need to have a story, you know, a beginning, a middle, and, and some kind of payoff at the end. But I mean, you have to if it's gonna if it's gonna be successful. I can because otherwise, you you could be in production. You say, oh, this is cool. Let's do this. Let's cool. Let's do this. But if you don't, if you if you can't go back to the kind of the main reason why we're doing this, then it's going to be a flop. I think. Yeah, I don't know. absolutely. And I think that films are the same way. And, and in fact, we were sort of inspired by film taglines. We were coming up with a concept last year for, or in fact, a couple of years ago now for Johnny Walker. We we do do some brand work as well as television, which is sort of events that then lead to content. Um. And we were talking, it was, it was a difficult brief and we were uh, brainstorming and that we then realised we really needed to treat it like a film and the film needed to have, have its sort of, its one-liner that you get on a film poster. And unless we could find that one-liner, we didn't feel that we could move on. It's sort of like the concept, what is the concept of the whole thing. Right. Um, which we eventually found, but it was fairly painstaking. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, so that's where we start, and then um, and then we go into sort of the, the more finite planning of of the multiple sort of story threads that may live under that concept umbrella, 
and um, and in and in that that part can be challenging because everyone has different ideas and and we have worked together for a very long time and we all know each other's talents and strengths and weaknesses um, but we're all very passionate people so there is this process of creative by committee where everyone needs to be very transparent and um, democratic yeah. <laughs> and that you know that's what I think makes Done and Dusted great is that we've man- we know how to do that and it can get heated and passionate but we all come back to the same place at the end and we're like siblings yeah, but that's, that we can yeah. sort of fight and get over it quickly. <laughs> that's what you want though right I mean that's how you get the, the best stuff right I mean you have to have that kind of that necessary conflict I would think. Yes exactly because from conflict um, comes the best ideas because typically out of conflict there's a there's a merging of ideas. It's rare that one person just rules supreme and the other person gets, you know, sent away. So it's, it normally comes compromise, and out of that there's you know the best bits of everyone's ideas are put together. So um, yeah, it's it, it is normally a fairly passionate and heated process, but. So, as the lead producer, as are you kind of the um, purveyor of the chaos? Is that the is that the grittiest job, the lead producer? <coughs> um, probably, yeah, I think so. I mean, I think line producers is pretty gritty too. So, uh, you know, in our business, there are kind of two areas: there's production, and then production management, and production management being line producers, production managers, um, generally organizers. Um, you know, they're financial, they schedule, they do all those um, sort of administrative and organisational chores, but they need to be robust in a storm. So they're pretty clever, um, well thought through people, particularly on these very big shows. Uh, there's a couple of gentlemen in the US that, uh, Rob Payne and Bill Irvin, that are the best in the world and that they've made a career of, of just being guys that you'd go to war with almost because right. just, everything is nailed down. Nothing's going to go flying at the 11th hour. So um, their work is quite gritty and, and hard in that they're the first in and the last to leave and that they're really there to support you. So I think sometimes they're the unsung heroes of the business. Um, and then there's production, which is the producers and directors and the creative teams. And uh, when you're the lead producer, you're sort of a politician. Right. Um as much as you like to think of yourself as a creative force, it's generally about managing people and getting the best out of people and just really being someone that is very approachable um, and authoritarian without being yeah, right without yeah without being a, without being a bitch yeah I <laughs> no no one wants to be managed by someone who's you know not seen as part of the team. Yeah, but at the same time, the buck stops with you too. So at the end of the day, there are times that you need to, you know, sort of be authoritative. But uh, you try to do it in the best humor possible. Yeah, I can kind of see. I'm picturing and I imagine the job is probably a lot of this person in the – I mean, you've just got this co-incentric 360 degrees level of um, reporting and accountability. And at times you've got to be – the hammer about the budget and timeline, but at the same time you've got to be, as you said, the biggest supporter of that guy or gal on the front line who's, you know, listening to them. It's like you're almost in the middle just constantly balancing everything. I don't know. Is that is that a fair assessment? Yeah, yes, it's definitely a fair assessment. And then, you know, on the award shows and um, 
well, all the specials really, sort of as you get closer to the show, then then the talent become a very big part of the producer's job in, in that you're now negotiating and managing and um, producing the talent along with the writers and so on. And that becomes the full-time focus, certainly once you're into rehearsals, but um, in the lead-up you're often having to sell ideas into the into the cast, whether that be a musical performer or a host or a guest presenter or whomever they uh, they then want your your attention 100% and in our business at Dun & Dusted sort of Ian Stewart and Hamish Hamilton are at the forefront of that talent management and are very good at it and have really great relationships with you know Hollywood is, uh, along with sort of music folks and um and that's a really big part of the job too because you need you need them to give you their best and to do that they need to feel really secure in the work that you're doing um, and really sort of enthusiastic in the ideas that you have. So um, that's a, that's another little sort of added mix into the politics of the award show world. So how do you do it? How do you become – it seems to me you have to be – you're bearing – you have to be so intentional about how you come across all the time and you're bearing – you have to be unflappable, especially in a live event. I can imagine when the inevitable unforeseen crops up um, you have to be comfortable with that and, and deal with that. You can't be the one freaking out saying everything's on fire, you know. So <laughs> Yeah, there's to be no freaking out. Yeah. No. Um yeah, there's and you can I mean, you can actually tell a mile off if you've got one of those in, in the house. Yeah. <laughs> so and when we're obviously a lot of a lot of part of my role is really about recruitment and finding great talent in young producers and you know, directors that we want to nurture and, and have be a part of our team moving forward. And, and you can almost tell within five minutes of interviewing someone whether they've yeah. got the steel to handle the live environment or not. It, it's, it's an awful thing to say, but it's just really apparent. Um, because as you say, once you get into the live show or the live event, even if it's not televised, it's just, there's no, there can be no other behavior than, than a calm sort of, really sharp, focused method. And it helps when you, your team have been together a long time. Sure, you know, yeah. we did the opening ceremony of the Olympics, which without doubt, the London 2012 Olympics, without doubt that was the most stressful I can imagine. lifetime and anyone could put themselves in. And I feel like that we were talking another language between us. Our, our shorthand was so short and we were using so little words to communicate because we were talking so quickly yeah, that implicit communication is so key, right? I, mean, and it's we just, like... I think people must have been looking at us going, what are they talking about? <laughs> but it just worked. It, we knew we could almost second guess what the other person needed and wanted to say. So, yeah. And that only comes from years and years and years and years and years of working together. Yeah, but it comes. It, but you're, you're right. But I love I, It's so key, I think, in any environment. And again, I, I love the extreme examples of a live event, but – that implicit communication is almost oh, how do I say it? It's almost like the secret sauce to to running a great organization or any event. You yeah. know, it, the secret sauce. I like that. Yes, that's yeah. true. It is. And so, yeah. how do you you know how do you how do you nurture that implicit? Obviously, it happens like you said through training, through experience, from from being in the mud together and going through all those hard you know those crazy events and seeing things and knowing how people work. But man, there has to be at the get go again finding the right people, knowing somebody that has the kind of a character or at least the willingness to trust and, and someone like yourself and the leaders have to you know kind of 
you know, filter that trust throughout the entire organization. If you don't have it, you know, if you have, if you're an authoritarian dictator, the thing's it's just going to be a disaster, you know? Yeah. And there are, you know, there are quite a few of those in the business, not in our business, but in the greater business. And um, I, I think a few decades ago, that was much more the norm. Sure. Um, and things have changed. It's sort of, you know, people have changed their approach to the business and to each other. And um, it's just become, I think, a, a, a lot a much nicer industry to work in, particularly for women. I think women only in the last sort of 10, 20 years have have really made themselves recognised and a known force in the television business, certainly sort of the live TV business. And um, But like you said, it, it does, it comes, trust is everything and it does come from the top and um, whilst I may be a lead producer or an exec producer, there are, there's always a uh, a director that I'm working with and right. creatively it's it's his vision that he has to drive and we're really fortunate that that director for the most part at Dun & Dusted is Hamish Hamilton and he's one of the partners so there's the, the four of us Hamish, Ian Simon and, and myself and Hamish is, um, I mean I can't sing his praises highly enough actually, not just because he's excellent at what he does in directing but just his his person, he's just a really nice guy and he would never raise his voice and he would always um, show respect to the person that gets him a cup of tea in the same way that the person that is behind the DOP behind the camera. He's just a really top guy and people love working for him, with him and for him and um, we're just really all pretty honoured that he's our leader on those things and so he's in the front line on a live show. I'm not sure how many people are listening or, or if you have been in a television track before when you see all the monitors at the front and right. then there's sort of the director with his assistant and, and the vision mixer on that front desk and the vision mixer is pushing the buttons and then behind that row is us, the producers. Um, and there's lots of footage online of Hamish doing his job. It, it became, the way he directed became so compelling that people just started filming it on their phones or on secret cameras or whatever and then mm. it just got out. And, um, I mean, U2, for instance, made it a feature on their DVD. You could just always cut back to him directing them in the truck because he is so passionate and he does a funny little dance. Um, and in addition, he's just so unbelievably organised. It's like watching a surgeon. Wow. Um, and, yeah, it's, very, it's, it's an exciting thing to be a part of his team. And, and you feel like you're sort of captain who's steering the boat or flying the plane in your instance is is really talented and is going to is going to land you safely hey halfway through the show i wanted to take a little bit of time if you could just be patient with me to talk let me talk to you about something that's very important and very personal to me you know if you've listened to the show and you've known me for the past two and a half three years i've been running masterminds little short week eight week masterminds eight to ten week masterminds where we you know, use a book as a basis of our foundation. We focus on leadership growth and development. And I've done a handful of books and various topics. But I started a new one here, and uh, it's one that's very personal to me. And it's probably one of the most uh, personal and transformative masterminds I think I've ever done. And I'm excited to continue this in perpetuity. So every eight weeks, I'll continue to bring in up to eight to 10 people in a new class and go through this book. It's so powerful and I'm so excited that I kicked it off. It's a book that eight years ago literally brought me back from the brink. The book is The Search for Significance by Robert S. McGee. And I was introduced to this book when I started seeing a Christian counselor um, 
after I was served divorce papers because of my stupidity and my poor decisions and my poor life choices. And this was the book that literally started to change the mindset and it continues to this day. I picked this book up again. I hadn't read it in a while. I started, I read it a few months ago and I felt this calling, this nudging to do this mastermind. I said, I've got to do a mastermind about this because it's so powerful. And two weeks in to my first eight week course and uh, the insights and the, the the impact has been phenomenal. I love the interaction between the group. I love the insights I myself have even learned and the powerful truth um, exposure and the, the, the destruction of lies that is happening within this group. And so if you're interested, you're curious about this, again, I'm always trying to fill this pipeline and continue this in perpetuity, starting the next one in September. Then there'll be another one in late October and so on and so on. But you can learn more at doseofleadership.com or richardryerson.com and click on the um, mastermind link and look for the search for significance. You can find out all the details. It is a mastermind, eight weeks, that will provide clear biblical instruction about the basis of our self-worth, which I think is so crucial because as leaders, understanding that this feeling of significance is crucial to the emotional, spiritual, social stability, and how we become leaders. It's a feeling. This feeling is the driving element within our human spirit. So the mastermind will give you the opportunity to surround yourself with up to 10 other like-minded people so we can understand and learn how to identify and understand the nature of significance, recognize the cha- and challenge inadequate answers and lies that we've been told our whole life, and most importantly, how to apply God's solution to the search for significance. There's no faster way to transform and impact your life. It'll rapidly accelerate your leadership and personal growth. And if you're interested, again, I'd love to see you in there. Thanks for letting me talk about this. Go find more at doseofleadership.com or richardryerson.com and click on the mastermind link. All right, back to the show, more with Melanie Fletcher. So is it your job as a producer to support the director as much as possible? I mean, because do you two have the most kind of, um, I I guess it's different throughout the process, but are you kind of guys tied at the hip throughout the whole process? Or, I mean, talk to me about that. Yeah, uh a lot, although the director will tend to sort of go off on their own little creative journey. Right. <laughs> um, but, yeah, your job is to, is to support them and, and is to try to protect them from some of the, you know, maybe some of the restraints of technology and budget and scheduling and try to not have them get bogged down in that in the same way that you might yourself because... If that happens, then everyone just ends up with their heads down trying to figure out, you know, the logistics rather than sort of we we have this saying to always look up because we do sometimes look around the office and everyone's just got their head down and it's just like there's no conversation happening and there's no brainstorming and, uh, and sometimes we just have to stop everyone and just say don't write another email for the whole day. Let's just communicate, get on the phone, have, you know, face-to-face conversations. But so it's a sort of saving him from, from all that stuff so that he can really just be creative and think about the ideas that he wants to execute on the stage. I mean, at some point he has to start getting involved uh, in some of the more administrative side of things like the actual rundown and the timings and, you know, there's lots of sort of technology that goes into the truck that they need to be aware of. Um, but for the most part, you want to support them enough that they can just have some free headspace to think creatively. Right. 
And I think that's the hardest job of a producer, actually, is to do that and then still have some headspace left for yourself to be creative and to participate in creative conversations without looking at your phone. Yeah. And I'm wondering why that <laughs> other idea is over budget or impossible or blah, 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 you know. Right. How long does the process take? I mean, take the example, oh, I can't admit, the Olympics had to be years in the making, but to, what, what's the average length to say, okay, I got an idea to, it, it's, it's, in, it's produced? Well, I mean, there's existing, like existing annual shows that we do, and we we kind of have a number of tentpole shows that we get that we get to do every year, um, and they're <laughs> you'd think that they would take less time, but in some but in some respects they're more challenging because you can't repeat what you did the year before, mm. and you've learned all these things from the year before that then maybe prevent you from being really blue sky in your ideas for the following year. So they end up taking us essentially the whole year. So we'll finish a show. So we just finished the Nickelodeon Kids' Choice Sports Awards last weekend. And, you know, within – I mean, no one's thinking about it today. But maybe next week we'll start debriefing it, talking about what, what we liked, what we didn't, what went well, reviewing the ratings, what where was it – did people ever turn off? If they did, when did they? And then we start thinking about the ideas for the next year and start – brainstorming those and then slowly putting them together and then, you know, eventually pitching them to the client probably six months out. Wow. So, and Victoria's Secret, honestly, they they are so incredibly motivated and passionate that literally the day after the show they'll be on the phone talking about the next year. And um, and that, I mean, it's a bit of running, you know, it can be quite funny, but it's true. They just, they never, they, they, they never stop with their enthusiasm for that show and for the team and for the process and, um, we now do two shows for them. There's the fashion show, which we're in our 14th year this year um, of that show, and our second year for their swim special, which is a more editorially led show. But we're in we're in July, and we're in full production on both of those shows. One tapes in November, and the other in December. Wow! And um, I, you know, I literally could do a bit, would be busy enough to do nothing else other than that <laughs> if I had the opportunity to only do that. Yeah, I mean- so. My head's just swimming. So, yeah, I mean, it's a long process. Yeah, my head's just swimming thinking of all the. I just, I just can't imagine all the the details that are involved. But it's just, it's just fascinating to me. And I think that, you know, curious about how. Um, yeah, you said a couple of interesting things. And as a father of four daughters, you know, here you are, oh <laughs> and uh, uh, obviously this calm and collected. You're the type of leader that I just gravitate towards. I love the kind of calmness, the the confidence that you have, this attention to detail. I kind of equate it to flying. You know, it's it's a, it's the same skill set when we're flying multi career airplanes. You have to always compartmentalize, right? I'm always in this battle of compartmentalizing in a leadership role, and and you're in the ultimate, especially in a live environment where you're constantly compartmentalizing your bearing, and I and I find that fascinating. How do you? Um, well, first of all, do you consider? Have you always considered yourself a leader, or is it just something you've kind of just naturally do? In other words, how intentional are you about your leadership? I guess is the real, is the real question. It's a good question. I mean, I think I think more so now than ever, and I honestly think that has just come with age, and with age has come the ability not to be scared of it. I yeah, think, yeah. and and to enjoy the responsibility, and to feel really confident in the role. To know that I've now have a, have a couple of decades' experience behind me, so I feel like I'm 
experienced enough to do the role and not pretend that I'm just doing it. You know, maybe right, right. I started when I was very young. So I think in you know, I was in the business full time in the television business by the time I was 18. So I think whilst I had some early successes, I think in my 20s, I just didn't feel like I had the confidence to do it. Um, mm-hmm. Or, or I just felt like a bit of a phony, to be honest. And I think, you know, then as years go on, you become sort of more comfortable with the role and, and now I feel really passionate about the role and want to be focused on improving those skills and, and, and honing in on how to be a great leader and having conversations like this and talking to other leaders and assessing how other people, what methods and strategies they use and how can I bring some of that into our business and how can I do it differently. And so now it's very purposeful. And I enjoy it very much, and um, and I hope that that is a part of my career that that only sort of increases and improves. Um, but I I, I I I mean I do know some very young great leaders, but for me it just wasn't something I was had the ability to do before forty really I think. And also I was busy becoming a mum and having a good time. Yeah, right. <laughs> and so there was only there was a there, I called time on on work at certain periods, you know. Right. Well, you know, I, you you said something really interesting there about you know, sometimes I felt like a phony. And they're probably saying, "Man, they're gonna they're gonna it's it's only any day now they're gonna figure me out, right? And figure <laughs> out that I don't know what I'm doing." But I think that goes that almost happens to everybody I've talked to. I know it certainly happened to me. Um, in times, are kind of like you don't feel like you're you, you feel like you're doing what you want to do, but you don't feel comfortable in the space for whatever reason. There's lack of confidence. The voice is telling you you don't belong there. You know, a lot of it's yeah. just you, but. Um, I'm interested how you kind of muddled through that or forced your way through it. Was it internal fortitude? Did you have mentors? I mean, what was it? A combination of both? I think it's just time. Yeah. And and then and experiences like things like the Olympics and other sort of big shows that we've done that were really monumental in my career and and in the careers of many others too. And when you pull it off and you succeed and, and you've sort of gotten over some bumps in the road where whether you've made an error or someone else has or whatever and you've fixed it, changed it, moved on, then you feel like there's not a lot that can be thrown at you that you can't handle anymore. And, you know, and I also think maybe having kids helps as well because it gives you a different perspective on life and all of a sudden it's not, you know, you rolled the wrong VT in, a, in an award show. I mean, that would be pretty disastrous, but it's not, you know, no one died. It's going right. to be okay. Right. You know, we can, we're going to move on from this and, and we can recover quickly in the truck and then figure it out after the show. I just think that really, that sort of ability to just not, uh, it, it's not that things are less important, it's just that you see them for what they really are and then you, your attitude towards them is different and better. Yeah, it's the ability, you're, you're not afraid, you don't like to make mistakes and you're always going to strive for excellence. But you're not afraid of making mistakes, is what I'm hearing you say. You're not afraid. Yes. You're not afraid yeah. of being wrong. You're not afraid of being yes. wrong. Yeah. Totally. And I think there's something. I think you've got to recognise when you're wrong, and, I, and it's a good thing to say. Oh no, that was wrong. Sorry. Let's do that differently, or or let someone tell you that you're wrong, and not be defensive about it, and listen to why they think that. And and that stuff. That's actually quite hard. <laughs> it's very hard. <laughs> that that right, was but... certainly harder than it is now. But. Um, but you know, the payoff back, is huge. Creative you know, democracy. Yeah, but the payoff is huge. I think that's so critical. It is hard, but I think that if, if people can get comfortable with that in leadership roles, I think you set yourself apart from because it's so easy to freak out and lose it or beat yourself up to the nth degree and flog yourself till you're bleeding to death about the mistakes you've made. 
But if you go into a, especially a creative project like you're talking about here, you just, I'm not afraid of being wrong because it just relieves a huge burden and it allows you to be your full creative force, I think. I don't know. Because otherwise yeah, you can't. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Yeah. yeah. It's, it, it's a, I think there's a real moment in everyone's career where that changes. And yeah. Well, not everyone's, but certain people where they, where they go from being maybe a bit, you know, uh, the right word that uh, you know just a bit bullheaded about things and then realize that actually life will be a lot better if that wasn't the case so what advice would you give you know my daughters that are coming up you know and they're sitting there and and of course my oldest just graduated high school she's entering her first year of college and i'm always talking to them and you know and, and i've worked with a lot of great I've worked with a lot of great women leaders. I've seen them and I've tried to tell them what made them different. And I've seen, I've worked with some who weren't so great either. And I'm curious about a woman in this kind of industry. And you kind of made that, you may alluded to how this is, it's gotten better for uh, women along the years. What, tell me if I'm, if, this is the advice I give my daughter and tell me if I'm okay, if, if this is right. So I've always told, I said, you just be, just in, totally embrace who you are and stop worrying about the differences between a man and a woman just lead and add value to other people's lives. And if you kind of take away the reminding everybody that you're a woman or a man, I think that's where people make the mistake. Does that make sense? Yeah, I totally agree. And, and I've sort of been contradictory there because I've made the parallel, you know, I've drawn that parallel earlier in the conversation when I probably shouldn't have, but I thought it were, it, it's, a, it's interesting for me because I've been in the business as it's changed and evolved over those sort of 20, 30 years. And, um, and it was, it's been an interesting process to be a part of that change. But I totally think you're right in that advice because that's sort of how I like to behave myself now and how I, I sort of have to have little words with myself before big presentations or meetings when if you're the only woman in the room or, um, or, or you know, one of two in a room of 30 or something, just that you're one, of, you're one of them, that you're all one of the, you know, the same kind, all got the same skill sets and talents right. to bring into the table to work collaboratively together. This no longer is them and us. Um, but for some reason I still need to give myself a little power chat before I walk into those. Well, I think that's normal for everybody, though. I don't think that ever goes away no matter who you are, you know, even if you're a man or a woman. I think that's, I think that's normal, right? I mean, I think that... Um and who would, you, who would you say is the best female leader that you've seen in action or spoken to? Who, who's someone that you find? See, I'm turning the interview on you now. Yeah, no. Well, I mean, <laughs> I, I just I think back. There's a couple, and it was almost at the same place that I worked in, and there were two women that were in very high positions there. And um, I, one I reported to directly, and then and it was, the other one was one above her. So she she reported to her. So that was my boss, two levels up, right? So and. Very, very confident, very um, – had, both had great skills, very technically and tactically proficient, like I said. But the one that I reported direct to, it's almost like you could see <clears throat> that she had um, an insecurity or a chip on her shoulder about the fact that this is a male-dominated world, which – okay, it is. We're not here to discuss that or if it is. But just like I told my daughter, if it is, what are you going to do about it? You know. And she kind of went – this woman that I worked with who – wasn't as successful as she always went into the room with a chip on the shoulder or I need to be one of the boys. And that always bothered me where the woman that she reported to my two level boss, she was just, she just existed. She was just, 
She took care of the folks. She was always confident. She was confident in who she was as a woman. She didn't try to be somebody that she wasn't, if that makes any yeah. sense. You know what I mean? She was just yeah, absolutely. She, she was comfortable in her skin. Yes. And I, that is the best advice that you can give to them is just to be themselves and not try to be anyone else for anyone else, whether that's because – and I think when you're younger, you can get easily sort of led to believe that someone would rather you be this way or that way. And I think you just need to have confidence in yourself and believe in yourself and, and, and never lose your sense of humour about things because right. particularly in the entertainment business, you, you know, you can get pretty self-worthy and you've just got to check yourself sometimes and just be like, all right, let's, you know – Let's get a grip on reality of what we're doing here and why we're doing it. We all got into this business because it seemed like a whole lot of fun. And the minute it becomes anything else, I think that you, you need to stop and review why it is now no longer a whole lot of fun. And, I mean, you know, it's big business now, so it's not all a barrel of laughs. But for the most part, we have a good time. We like coming to work. We like each other. We like the job we do. We enjoy finishing work and going for a drink and talking about work. Yeah. Obviously drives our partners and children mad. But, um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, we're, we're in a really, really lucky position because not everybody feels like that about the 10, 12, 14 hours a day that they have to spend earning a living. And, you know, that's the key to a happy life is to enjoy the way you earn your money. Well, yeah, and, I, and you just—you're obviously a great example of of doing. I just can't imagine. I'm looking at this list, you know, the Victoria's Secret, the Olympics. It's just the opening and closing ceremonies. My gosh, I could just—I could talk to you for days about just that <laughs> process. I don't, I'm sure I would. I'm sure I would bore you. <laughs> I don't know. I just find that whole thing fascinating. You know, just the whole behind the scenes. I'm always thinking that when I'm watching a movie or a television show, I'm just wondering about how do they do it? How do you know? Just kind of the the logistics behind all of that. You know, I'm always fascinated by that. Because yeah, I mean, it is, it's fairly major. There's no doubt about that. It's just, um, there is a bit of a method, like in sort of the live award shows or specials that are essentially on a proscenium stage in a venue, uh, in, you know, in a major city. Obviously, things need to change creatively, but logistically, there is, you know, there's, it's a well-worn path to get those shows on right, air now. Right. Um, it's, the hard ones are the, the new ideas the bespoke events or, you know, we did Victoria's Secret Swim for the first time last year and that was a brand new idea. We didn't really know what we wanted out of the end result and so we're sort of testing as we went and, um, and you know, that was we had, you know, the, world, the biggest collection of supermodels in the world in Puerto Rico for 10 days and we... They were shooting two catalogues for print and a commercial when we were shooting a one-hour television special. I mean, there must have been 200 two to 300 crew there all wanting to shoot on different times with different girls at different locations with an enormous amount of kit. And then we threw in a couple of musical performances just to make things more difficult. For us. So <laughs> that stuff is, that is a bit of a circus. Wow. Um, every, every day is a long, hard day. <laughs> I can imagine. Okay, that's just how fun. I mean, as we wrap up again, I could talk about there's so many things I could talk about. I'd love to talk to you again some some other time. But as We're we kind of to come to London for a warm pint. Oh my gosh, yes, yeah. I remember the first time I went to London. I went to the the some pub out of Milton Hall there, and it was the first time I was in the UK. And of course, you know, I'm used to you know Midwest and the Kansas. Everything's ice cold, and I go to this pub, and this guy's just like, <laughs> "What is this? What is going on here?" But well, it was just a great experience. Yes, yeah, uh, I, will, I will miss it very much. I've been here almost 20 years. Wow. Um, 
So it definitely is home and it's where I spent my adult life. Um, although probably maybe a third, if not a half of each year spent in America. I don't live in America, so um, I see London as home. So it's a big move uh, to Los Angeles in October and um, looking forward to that new adventure. Well, as a family this time, so heading to the sunshine. Heading to the sunshine, the land of land of milk and honey, I guess. And uh, yes, well, and milk and honey, and no water. No water. That's right. <laughs> well, hopefully, hopefully El Nino will come in full force this winter and and replenish all the uh, reservoirs. Yes, hopefully. Yeah. So, uh, but Dan and Dustin is doing so well in the states. We've been really fortunate to um, have a couple of really fantastic clients that have given us, you know, they've been daring enough to let us really uh, create some new shows and then some existing shows really sort of work on making them successful year on year and um, it's just meant that we, we, you know, we're now sort of bigger in America than we are in the UK which we, we couldn't have ever dreamed of that. So um, it's exciting times for us as a business. Well, very good. Well, excited to have you come to the States and uh, look forward for your arrival. Kind of a fun question as we wrap up here. I always ask people, I'm always curious who people's kind of heroes were. If you could have the the ultimate dinner party and you invite five people live or dead and just have this fascinating conversation. Night of, oh my gosh. Who, who would those five people be? Five people. Okay. Let me think about that. Um, maybe Elvis Presley. Ooh, good one. Um, and I have to write them down as we go. Who else? I would quite like, um, who would I quite like? To, I'd quite like Richard Branson. Okay. Good one. Yeah. And Hillary Clinton. Hillary, okay. And I'm going to throw in Britney Spears. Britney Spears, interesting. Because <laughs> I like her dancing. And then um, who would be my fourth person? I mean, my fifth person. Um, I think you're coming, Richard. So you're my fifth person. I'm your. Oh my gosh, what an honor! There you go. We have a party on our hands. Man, I would love. To see the conversation between Elvis, <laughs> Richard Branson, Hillary Clinton, Britney Spears, and myself. Yeah, and Elvis. And Elvis. Yeah. <laughs> um, there we go. Man, what would you ask Elvis? What would I ask Elvis? Um, I just think I'd be. I think it'd be more people watching than asking. I'm just absolutely fascinated by him. Yeah. Um, and I'm not quite sure which era of Elvis I want. I think I want the good-looking era. Okay, you but, want um, you want the the fifties black leather, or you want the the Hawaii special, or the uh, yeah, I want the Hawaii special, the nineteen sixty nine. Yeah, the, the black leather Elvis. Yeah, yeah. Uh, not not the I mean, not the sequin jumpsuit. A charming, flirtatious man at that point, I think, isn't he? I think it would just be about enjoying his company. I'm not sure that I really, I'm not sure that I need to ask him anything. Yeah, it would just be kind of fun to watch. I get, I hear what you're saying. Just be kind of fun to see how those they would all interact. Yeah. Yes. Well, fascinating. Well, guys, and Melly, it's just been fun talking to you. I mean, I'm so you too. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you wanting to talk to me and hear a bit more about our business. And um, it's a real honor to to be asked. So, thank you very much. And I hope our paths cross at some point in the future. Definitely. So, I'll have Dun and Dusted links to to the post on this. Is there any other way that you can get people to connect with Dun and Dusted, or maybe yourself? Is there any kind of plug you want to put out there? Um, I'll just sort of, you know, just the usual socials, you know, where Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and then our website where you can find all of the links to that, those platforms. Thanks for coming on the show. Pleasure.
Richard invites you to become a part of the Dose of Leadership community. Visit doseofleadership.com and sign up to receive his free Common Sense Leadership eBook, a guide that highlights how all of us can learn to become calm, confident, consistent, and courageous in all aspects of our lives. Richard is also available as a speaker for your next event. Richard specializes in practical leadership and change management. He has a philosophy of inspiring everyone to think and act like a leader, which is based on timeless natural principles and common sense. You can get more info by visiting doseofleadership.com. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. I'm Andrea, founder of a boutique handbag brand, Andy, and this is why I switched to Shopify. I tried three other platforms prior to Shopify, and I remember my breaking point was when I would try to make one little change and my entire site would go down. Shopify made it really easy for me to shift everything over and hit the ground running. I was able to migrate my products and all of my customer information over. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Go to shopify.com slash listen to take your business to the next level today. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 